Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. We're going to talk about a hope and a home, and that's going to structure especially the second and the third sessions. We want to explain in this one what we mean by needing a hope, that is, being hopeless, and by needing a home, that is, being homeless. Because what we want to understand before we talk about anything that we're doing is what might be wrong, what might need to change, what is going on today. So over the course of the morning, I'm going to be talking about both things that I think you know, but perhaps sometimes we don't talk about, and also some things that I think you know, but you have perhaps forgotten. So of course, we don't talk about those things either, because they are, at this point, unknown to us very often. We've forgotten them so long. And in talking about known things, particularly in this session, and we have 45 minutes, I suppose, in this session, we're going to talk largely about what you might want to call the bad news part. So Pastor Broughton mentioned good news in a bad news world. We're talking largely about the bad news part now so that we can understand why. Why does this matter? Or what exactly are we talking about? Because we're not gonna, we're gonna try at least not to speak at all generically today. Like, the world is very bad, right? You may know the old hymn that goes, the world is very evil. Well, I didn't fly here to tell you that the world is evil. You knew that. That's not interesting, novel, nothing. We wanna talk about the shape of that evil today. Okay, the shape of that evil. So we're going to use two adjectives and we'll explain what they mean, but they are hopeless and homeless. The hopeless part, we mean pretty literally. The homeless part, not so much, although we'll use literal homelessness as a way to picture for ourselves what might be wrong. But with both, whether we're speaking literally about people lacking in hope or figuratively about people who are alienated or not at home, even in their hometowns, we're speaking about a spiritual problem. A spiritual problem. Sometimes it seems almost visible in people's lives, their bodies, the way they carry themselves, the way they interact or rather don't with anybody else. But when we're talking about homelessness, we're talking about something that very often in the way that we'll speak of it is not seen because it is inside of them. And it's a sadness they bear with them. They carry as they go through life. In talking about something that you know, let's start with things that are well known to you, just visible in most of our congregations, perhaps even all of them. And that is what you could call in church terms, decline. And we'll be talking throughout the morning, both in terms of the church and in terms of individual souls because of how those situations are so deeply related to each other. 
In terms of the church, you can find a really interesting guy. He's actually pretty close to you guys at Eastern Illinois University named Ryan Burgey. He does religious demographics. He studies populations of religious people or irreligious people as the case may be. And something I didn't really understand until I looked into the things that he was writing was how just absolutely dominant churches were about 100 years ago. About 100 years ago, almost every American would report, by various measures that he's used, almost every American would report having been raised in a church. Almost everybody would report having been raised in a church. That doesn't mean necessarily that membership was equal to that number, certainly not. And it doesn't mean, and you know this, that it didn't mean that active membership in a church was at that number, but it did mean this. And you can see this very easily. We'll talk in the second and third sessions about how to go about, how we might approach giving people a hope or giving them a home. But the approach was very different way back when. Here's what you could do. You could go to their house and you could knock on the door and guess what? Somebody was there. They weren't too busy. And you could ask them, are your children in Sunday school? And they would know what that was and why maybe they should be in Sunday school if they're not. And so you could even start whole new churches just by starting a Sunday school because there was pre-existent demand for them, the way there is today in a small town like this for side-by-sides, right? Now, 100 years ago, nobody was riding to Casey's in a side-by-side. Now, if I wanted to sell side-by-sides, I know where I would try to sell them. But the demand for Sunday schools has plummeted. In fact, our Sunday schools, which were usually originally formed for an evangelistic purpose, because we assumed that our kids were getting a Lutheran education or a Christian education throughout the week, so they don't need Sunday school necessarily. You'd have church, but maybe not Sunday school. Sunday school was founded to get kids who had no prior acquaintance with church to go to church. That's what they were for, kind of like the way that we often look at vacation Bible school today. Now, over time, Sunday school and vacation Bible school have both largely become in most of our churches for our kids, because that's who wants to go. So if you go back about 100 years ago, you're moving, in a, you're moving around in a situation where people assume they need to go to church and that they want to go to church. So decline has occurred in a number of people who even report in any kind of way that they are interested in going to a church. Decline has therefore occurred, and this is what we can see, in the number of people who are actually in a church, in our church, on a Sunday morning. We see it, we know it, we think about it. Where I want to start today is simply by saying this, that if that's what you're worried about and it's okay and good and in fact necessary to be worried about it, that's not going to motivate you to do anything about it. The sheer knowledge of what is wrong or has gone wrong, or your theory at least about what has gone wrong, why is the Sunday school smaller? 
why are the pews emptier, is not going to motivate the church to do anything with the gospel. Pastor Broughton referred to Paul's courage, and it is astounding. You can take 2 Corinthians and set it next to Acts, and you say, I can't believe he went through even more than all the stuff that's recorded in Acts. Because here's a list in 2 Corinthians, and I can't even find all that in Acts. So it happened at other times, and before then, and after then, and during that time, but it didn't get written down by Luke. Why would he do all that? And you can go through Paul's letters, and you're not going to find the same words or tone that we often use to talk about evangelism. When we talk about evangelism, we often talk about it indirectly by talking about what's wrong with church, right? Or how the churches are declining. So we don't even quite get to discussing solutions. We just say, here's a big problem. And I would suggest every time that you're talking about your church's budget, you're actually talking about evangelism. You're just one or two steps away from doing so because you're talking about what are actually priorities for Christ's people to be engaged in. You'll notice that Paul doesn't quite talk in that way. He talks directly. But when he talks directly, he talks plainly. Recall this because we're going to come back to it later. Recall that in Romans chapter 9, Paul brings up the evangelism that has been most difficult in his ministry. You might remember that Paul doesn't get told, but Ananias gets told what Paul's going to do. Paul doesn't get all that information. He just gets blinded and then and then he can see, and then he's baptized, and that's it. So go ahead, Paul. Like, you can walk now on your own, so go ahead. Ananias gets told what Paul's going to do. Paul's going to bear the name before the nations and before kings and before Israel. Now, two of those three components are going to be relatively easy. His own people will be the great difficulty and the great disappointment which he will express several times, not only in Acts, but also in his letters. That his own people have not received the gospel, have not believed in the prophets whom their fathers read every Sabbath in the synagogue, like Moses has read. Great disappointment. So Romans 9, Paul begins to express this great disappointment. Now, what I'm suggesting to you is that we often, as American Christians, stop at about Romans 9, verse 2. We just stop right there. It hasn't gone well. And that's it. And if you stop there, of course, there's never anything like a solution or a comfort. What there is, is a very bleak picture of what is going on. Because we know, as well as Paul knew about the Israelites, what is going wrong. Let's be a little more detailed about this in terms of individual people, since we've mentioned some very high-level 
things about church and churches are smaller or the percentage of people claiming to be Christian is smaller. What are we talking about when we're talking about people being, for instance, hopeless? We're saying that in their lives and in their spirits, they have no sense of the future being open or good. And we don't mean necessarily that they're rejecting the Christian gospel. They probably never heard it at this point. We don't mean that they're necessarily rejecting some point of teaching that the Bible has for us. They probably never read that. We mean that in their lives, what they are expressing, and this gets called a lot of different things, but in their lives, they are expressing, maybe in their words, maybe in their attitudes, maybe in their actions, that the future has really nothing good for them, for their families. Now, how does this get expressed? And these are things that are known to us. It gets expressed probably most often because we can get things pretty quickly. Thank you, Amazon. Thank you, many other things. By trying to get a bunch of stuff that will make you feel better about the future you're not very interested in. <clears throat> so what we describe, I think a little coldly as consumerism, if you look at it as a spiritual matter, involves trying to get the right stuff at the right time so that you feel the right way. It may be that you're getting, and this may be why we have an increasingly large drug problem pretty much everywhere in America. That on a spiritual level, I'm not talking about something when I'm talking about opioid addiction that's really all that different from the fact that the Amazon guy came three times yesterday. <clears throat> Just that my addiction to buying stuff is legal and not as lethal, probably as somebody with a drug addiction. But spiritually what it is in both cases is that I am trying to obtain the right stuff that will make me feel the right way about life and feel is important here because when we're talking about hopelessness, we're not usually talking about anything anyone is able to or does say out loud. they're probably not sitting there saying, I am hopeless. They sense these things or they feel these things or like other things that are hidden about people, their hopelessness is much more visible in their actions than in their words. Remember how Jesus talks about evaluating people, watch, not so much what the Pharisees say as what the Pharisees do. Well, that doesn't just go for Pharisees. It does tell you a lot more about a human being, what he does and what his life has kind of wound up as than just listening to the words he says. So especially when you're dealing something with something for which people have few to no words, it's especially important to watch what they do. And if they are buying and buying and buying and buying something, because maybe you have noticed this, that consumer credit has not shrunk 
as lots of other things that should cause it to shrink have shrunk, like buying power, right? That's what inflation does. It shrinks our buying power, but our consumer debt has not necessarily shrunk, even though inflation has gone up. If I am trying to get the right stuff to feel the right way, maybe something is going on with me. So this also helps us to see something that things that cause us very great despair, I think it's easier usually to see them alongside some other human problem that is like it, just not as extreme. Because when I think about the opioid problem, that's where I'm originally from, opioid, you might have different drugs here. But when you think about it, the easiest thing to do with someone else's hopelessness is to say, wow, thank God that's not going on with me. I never developed a drug problem because my life went in a different way. Well, that's not very productive for the preaching of the gospel to separate yourself from the person in need of the gospel and to say, well, I'm really glad that I went to college and didn't get stuck in this town where we all got stuck or felt like we would in high school. So, wow, that's really tough. Notice that's not what Paul does in Romans 9. His people are indeed rejecting the gospel. That is objectively evil. But he calls them my kinsmen according to the flesh. He doesn't separate himself from them and say, wow, that's really sad that those guys don't get it. Really sad. Can you believe that? Alongside the expression of the need to buy and to have, another expression of hopelessness is an increase in rage and all forms of instability, especially what we might even call emotional or you could call personal instability. Why would somebody just go crazy when he gets cut off in traffic? Just absolutely lose his mind, a grown man. Why would this happen? Because he's on some kind of edge. Because he feels like his life is on some kind of edge and one or two events that day could push him beyond that. That people are living on some kind of edge that causes them to feel, and when you're on an edge, we don't mean that you're not on the verge of a totally new future. We mean that you're on the verge of a totally new and awful future. If you just get pushed a little bit, So, of course, you are going to be hopeless. You probably heard a phrase like this, like, you never know what someone is going through, so always be kind. I'm sure that could be misused. But it is true, when you meet somebody, you do really have no idea what the lady behind the counter at Casey's is going through. You could take a guess. You might have some notion. If you all live in the same small town, you have a pretty good idea. What is the matter with people? They are hopeless. Let's talk about homelessness. And this is the one that we don't mean literally, although both the hopelessness that we just talked about 
and lots of other things contribute to the enormous literal growth in homelessness, which is kind of the wrong word because a lot of those folks are addicted to drugs. They were hopeless before they were homeless, and they want to remain homeless because they remain hopeless. But we mean it especially this morning in a spiritual sense or a figurative sense that people feel that they are without a stable place. This is the difference between a house and a home. A house could be anywhere, and you could be anywhere. But this happens even if you never leave your town or your county where you grew up, because it can change that rapidly so that you can feel alienated or estranged or weirded out even in the place that you never left. How does that work? How can that be? Let's talk again, start with the church, and then we'll talk about individuals because I want to always stress this morning the desire to help individual souls, a sheer desire to perpetuate the church as such or the way that we do things as such doesn't really matter and you won't hear it in Paul. His concern is always for souls. But let's talk about the church because it is helpful to think about. Is that very often when I go places and talk to pastors and parishioners, the tone is sad. It's really different. I have some books from the 1950s about church, about how to have a really big, successful church from the 1950s. And some of them are fun, but you know what's really fun is you open up the book and you're not depressed. That's really fun. It might not even be true what they're saying in the book, but at least they're happy. Because it's nice to listen to happy people, right? But very often, what we hear in church is a certain sense of deep estrangement, alienation. What do we mean? It feels like the world is rushing by outside the church, and the church is not really able to react quickly enough or well enough to all that rushing. But it's not like the church gets to stand still as the world rushes by. The world rushes by. The world's going crazy. The world's going insane. And the church on the inside is getting smaller. It would be one thing if the world were going crazy, but you were doing fine. That's actually kind of fun, maybe, right? That's kind of fun. And you could say, well, uh, yeah, the world's going crazy, but we are just outstanding in here. But the world is going crazy and it's affecting us. Think about where most of our kids go. In these books from the 1950s, not only are they happy, but they're also really worried that when their kids grow up, they might want to be Methodists. They might marry a Methodist and turn into Methodists. And that would be, are there any Methodists in here? Are there any Wesleyans? Don't raise your hand. Okay. Why are they worried about that? because it's kind of the biggest problem they have. 
because people probably want to go to church and you got to explain to them why they should go to the right kind of a church. That makes sense. Usually today, when our kids stop going to the church they were raised in or the kind of a church in which they were raised, they're probably not going to any church. That's probably what will happen. They probably don't live where they were raised, but even if they do, they're probably not going to any church, just in terms of what's likely. So this is a case where even if the kid, like mom and dad want, lives within reasonable driving distance, even if he's basically still at home, he is not committed to the same things to which mom and dad, and certainly grandma and grandpa, were committed, and he's probably not committed to that church. That makes his own hometown a different place even for him, but think about his grandparents. Because one of the things that can be very burdensome about old age is knowing when things were better. It can be very beautiful to have known that things were worse and they got better for your family, but one of the big burdens is knowing when they were better. That when you were his age, people went to church. You yourself tried to go to church every Sunday. You didn't always succeed, but you tried. That makes the church, because think about how weird this is if you think of it as a family or a home, is that the kids are driving right past mom and dad's house when mom and dad are in there on Sunday morning. That's weird. They were supposed to come home for Christmas and they came right next to mom and dad's house, but they drove right past the front window with the Christmas tree all lit up. Weird. Why is that? Certain things that are actually somewhat like drug use, measurable, or at least we can talk about them as general phenomena about individuals, is that people report being more isolated specifically more friendless than ever before. And sometimes you know this. Maybe you have called somebody up at one time or another and realized that unfortunately you were the only person to call that guy up when he was going through that. Theoretically, after so many years of life or so many years in the same town or so many years in the same circle of friends, that guy would have at least three people that would call him up and care about what was happening, but he didn't. Friendlessness, isolation, right? But what you can also see happening inside of people is that even, thank you, internet, even in small places, people are into strange ideas and practices that years ago you probably would have only had to worry about the Methodists in your town. 
But now your kids in high school might be interested in Wicca, or your kids in high school might be interested in being trans, or your kids in middle school might be interested in being trans. Now, these all seem like strange things, and they are. But think about what they also create. Think about that person who has basically learned his new pagan religion from the internet. Instead of having a place that he can go to and be at home with mom and dad and grandma and grandpa every Sunday, his community of like-minded people, his sense of belonging is governed by his internet access. It may also partly be why he tries to be on the internet during all of his waking hours. But what that creates, if it gives him a new sense of identity or a new stupid idea to try out in his life, possibly with irreparable harm, is that it gives him a community which is unreal. It's not a home. It looks like a home. It is an artificially intelligent rendering of a home. But there's nowhere to go. There's no one to meet. So in his actual daily life with his own flesh and blood, he remains isolated. If you think about the way that a lot of people felt during the worst of COVID, you can understand how anti-Christian such a world of homeless people is. Because they weren't meant to be separated from each other the way that they are after and before COVID. COVID was an intensification of something that was going on before and has continued and maybe gotten worse because of COVID afterward. We're finishing up this session talking about souls. And let's make clear Why, as in the second and third sessions, we talk about giving them a hope and giving them a home. Because unless you are looking in the eyes of that person who is doing something very strange with his life, thanks to the internet, or whose life has been wrecked by various other things to which he has become addicted, or just take the temperature down a notch from there, to probably where most normal people are, somewhat friendless, somewhat hopeless, somewhat confused, somewhat isolated, if you think about looking in their eyes, then maybe it becomes clear why we are here today. Because when you look in their eyes, you have to face the fact that they are your neighbors. And they check you out when you buy the breakfast pizza. They're right there. And if you don't really care about them, then the question is, who is going to? Think about this in terms of Paul. Paul himself will tell you how difficult his own people have been. Paul himself can tell you and tell stories about how hard it has been to preach the gospel to his own people. If Paul doesn't care about them, 
who's gonna? Probably nobody. Because they could read Paul's own words and say, Paul, you yourself said this was really hard and you don't even care. So why should I, who am not an Israelite, care about Israelites? Because what we're interested in is not accepting a story of the churches as well as these individual souls, perpetual hopelessness and homelessness until we just fold up shop. That would not only be horrible, and you wouldn't want to read such a book because it would just be so depressing. But it would also be to go against what our Lord clearly says, that we should preach the gospel to all nations, including our own. Let's take a little break for questions. Uh, So if you have a question, please raise your hand. I'll repeat it. Yeah. So he said, Paul is uh, direct about problems. This is easiest to see in 1 Corinthians, right? Because he brings up a bunch of stuff they don't want to talk about and didn't write to him about before he gets to chapter 7 and brings up the stuff that they wrote to him about. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys have a lot of weird stuff going on. Let's talk about that first. This is a massive cultural problem that we have. It's a cultural problem. It's not a Bible problem because the Bible is direct with us. So where and when it's direct with us, if we are indirect or we're not even, I mean, indirect would be to say, I said, for instance, we're indirectly talking about evangelism when we're talking about our budget because we're talking about spiritual priorities when we set a budget for a church. That's what we're doing. Reason you pay the pastor is because it's spiritually necessary to have a minister of God for your congregation. That's a spiritual necessity as it is also to proclaim the gospel. Okay. But we're indirectly, we're indirectly talking about evangelism when we're talking about budgets. If we're going to be actually able to handle problems, I think we have to talk We have to talk directly, specifically about problems that if we handled them indirectly, many people would not get the point. Because some people will be able to pick up on, you know, this is a budget is actually a spiritual document for a church. It tells you what that church actually cares about. But if you don't say that directly, many people will simply not understand. So what is Paul talking about in the rest of Romans 9, as well as 10 and 11, that we're not getting? Is that we stop with the problem and we don't go into the Paul's solution to, well, what if this person doesn't hear? Or what if they don't believe? Or what is always, well, why don't we send someone to preach to them, right? What the, the answer to I'm worried for this person is, why don't you tell them? Why don't you tell them? And I think we often stop there, okay? And the difficulty with stopping there is that in leaving the person in silence, silence biblically is like the absolute worst thing from God. Silence it would be an indication that God is actually leaving you alone, which is horrible. 
if he's going to send somebody to tell you that you're wrong, that is so much better than being left in silence. So it's very loveless to leave somebody in silence like that. And Paul's solution to my people don't listen is how are they going to hear without somebody preaching? That's like the middle of chapter 10. Um, Because if nobody says anything, of course, no one's going to hear anything. I mean, it sounds like trite to say, it sounds stupid to say that, but it really is, it really is true. And it's, I think it's a measure more of our fear of being rejected, which if you're, especially if you're a minister of the gospel, you need to just get over. You're going to be rejected. That's just the, it's in the job description. Your people are not praying for you that you would be able to, with apologies to whoever is upset, they're, they're not praying for you to conduct the service exactly according to the altar book that Sunday. That's not why they pray for their pastor. You, you either care about doing that and you work at it or you don't, but that's not why they're, they're praying for you because you're going to be rejected. I mean, Jesus prepares to send out his disciples and says, and when they reject you, here's what you do. When they receive you, here's what you do. When they reject you, here's what you do. Get over yourself. Right? It's not about you, so it doesn't need to be so horrible when someone says, I don't believe what you're saying. Okay, well, it's fine. <laughs>